On August 28, 1963, more than a quarter million people walked in the historic March on Washington for jobs and freedom. The same march that saw Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. give his I Have a Dream speech. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It was that march that helped lead to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The landmark legislation banned segregation in public places and prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. The law was a long time coming. Since the end of the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, Black Americans had been forced to live a life of second-class citizenship, and they were constantly terrorized and brutalized by white Americans. Those who fought for their freedoms were threatened, arrested, and beaten, while others like Medgar Evers, Fred Hampton, Malcolm X, and of course, King, were assassinated. I'm Cheyenne Daniels, race and politics reporter for The Hill, and on this episode of The Switch Up, we're taking a walk back through history to the march that changed everything in the fight for civil rights. But we'll also take a look at where that fight stands today, 60 years later. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom was huge. It was the largest gathering for civil rights at that time. Around 250,000 people from all over the country filled the streets of Washington, D.C. and stood in the shadow of former President Abraham Lincoln at his memorial. The march was the brainchild of A. Philip Randolph, the founder of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the Negro American Labor Council. It wasn't the first time he had proposed a mass protest either. Randolph had been trying for a mass demonstration since the 1940s. On two separate occasions, he proposed marches to pressure the White House to end segregation and discrimination in the U.S. defense industry. His plan worked, and then President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed an executive order to prohibit discrimination in the defense industry in 1941. Seven years later, in 1948, President Harry Truman desegregated the armed forces. Both executive orders happened before marches could take place, so Randolph canceled the demonstrations. When it came to the March on Washington, Randolph was joined by a host of other organizers, including Bayard Rustin, who was known for planning nonviolent protests. Other civil rights groups involved in the march included the NAACP, the National Urban League, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Congress on Racial Equality, and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. More groups would join the Big Six, including the American Jewish Congress and the National Council of Negro Women as planning continued. So many groups and so many people, and still, the march came together in only three months. Cortland Cox, chairman of the SNCC Legacy Project, was one of the organizers for the March on Washington. The march was organized in less than 90 days. I mean, when the morning when I got up and I was walking the, the mall with Bayard Rustin and we saw nobody 
and Biden turns around and says, you know, you know what, what, what do we have here? And the problem was there were so many people coming in at the same time, the highways were clogged up. Nobody could get into town. And all of a sudden, you know, all thousands and thousands, but less than 90 days. And the reason we were able to do it in less than 90 days, I think, was the work of the NAACP and the, the kind of magnet it was because at one in the 50s it was a criminal act to have an NAAC card in the Mississippi and black people they, they that subterfuge that all that energy was there so you were able to bring that energy together in 90 days it took less than 90 days to put that march together and I mean you had a literally an explosion of people saying and to quote uh, Fannie Lou Hamer people being sick and tired of being sick and tired that was the energy that brought people to the march in less than 90 days. They were sick and tired of being sick and tired. Though many people focus on Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech from the march, Cox said what he remembers that day was the late John Lewis's speech. Lewis, who was only 23 at the time, spoke on behalf of SNCC. His speech, laced with anger and frustration, targeted Dixiecrats, but also the Kennedy administration, which he said put forth a civil rights bill, quote, too little and too late. Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We're tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. We do not want to go to jail, but we will go to jail. If this, this is a prize, we must pay for love, brotherhood, and true peace. Lewis would later spend over 30 years fighting for civil rights in the House of Representatives. The speech I remember most is John Lewis's speech, <laughs> because I had, a, when there were 250,000 people out there, John Lewis, Jim Foreman, myself, had to change John's speech because the Kennedy administration opposed his speech, because he crit was critical of the Kennedy administration. And one of the things about the speech in 1963 was he called for one person, one vote, which was a radical concept. But when I listened to King's speech, and I, you know, they were all things going on there. I mean, when I was up on the stage, you know, Marlon Brando was up there, and James Baldwin, and I mean, Charlton Heston, and I mean, every movie star you can think of, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier. So it was hard for me to do both John's speech and look at all this going on and listen to Mahalia Jackson talk about, you know, Egg and King on, tell them, you know, tell them, Rev, tell them. And so there were a lot of things. But when I I looked at the speech after, because I really couldn't understand it while I was, all these things were going on. King answered the question that most white Americans were saying. And every time we did something, they would say, what do you Negroes want? And King said, we have a dream that's deeply rooted in the American dream. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a point that Derek made. We are Americans at the end of the day. So he now answered a lot of the questions. And it seems kind of 
strange people going around asking, what do you Negroes want? But that was the major question. So I think that day I didn't understand all the King was speaking because I had too much over stuff over here. But after looking at over years, you know, he's, I have a dream that's deeply rooted in the American dream. Yeah. And I mean, in the speech, we focus on the dream and the true essence of the speech is there's a promissory note called the Constitution, and we took it to the, 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 the steps of justice, and it came back insufficient funds. That the very promise of this nation to its citizens, and we are human, we are citizens, are coming back to us insufficient funds. That's the fight we're in today. That's the fight that we must protect and continue moving into the future. The impact of the march was undeniable, with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 both being enacted after Jim Crow laws were outlawed and segregation was deemed unconstitutional. There was progress, but Martin Luther King III, son of Martin Luther King Jr., said he's disappointed with how progress has seemingly stalled since his father's I Have a Dream speech. I would have hoped we were further along than we are, which does not mean that we've not seen some progress over 60 years in, re in relationship to you know, the vision that my father enumerated of freedom and justice and equality for all humankind. But I can't imagine that he would have envisioned necessarily that in 2023, that our nation would be at loggerheads in relationship to fighting to protect and preserve democracy, fighting to expand the right to vote, to make it easier to vote, as opposed to making it harder to vote, uh, as some uh, states have done, uh, fighting uh, to regain the right to choose fighting just for people to have basic rights, the LGBTQIA community, uh, and the list goes on and on. Andrea Waters King, who leads the Drum Major Institute with her husband, has also been feeling disappointed in the stalled progress lately. Andrea pointed to recent Supreme Court decisions, such as ending the federal right to abortion and an end to race-conscious admissions in higher education as cause for concern and the reason why neither she nor her husband plan to sit idly by. You know, our daughter, who is the only grandchild of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King, when you think about that she and her peers are literally sitting with fewer rights than the day that they were born, this generation, they've lost um, rights. Um, and the reason that I, that I say that is that um, she was born in 2008. In 2013, the Voting Rights Act, the crowning achievement of her grandparents' work, as well as all of those who worked with them, was basically decimated. And then when you look at in 2020, our home state here of Georgia, where she resides, was one of the states that um, passed initiatives to make it harder to vote rather than easier. And then when you think about the fact that here again in our, our state, um, there is an attack on diversity, equity, and inclusion being taught in school and history being taught, clothed in attacks on critical race theory, which is something that's only taught to a few people that are in law school for a half of a semester. So when you look at the fact that here in the very state that her grandfather 
was born, you know, um, history is being erased. And then, of course, when you look at um, last year in 2022, um, with the decision basically striking down Roe v. Wade, she as a, a female, you know, lost more rights for her, her reproductive freedom. So in a very real sense, this generation and their 15 short years have progressively lost rights, which is the antithesis of what a democracy, you know, is and should be. So certainly I feel, um, as I would imagine most, most, most people and certainly most mothers, um, very concerned about that. And also as a student of history, when you think about the fact that this really hasn't happened since the end of Reconstruction and the beginning of the passage of Black Codes, where laws were starting to be passed in a, a systemic way, erasing gains that have been made. Advocates have been expressing growing concern over a host of legislation and rhetoric they say targets Black Americans. Last month, members of the Congressional Black Caucus pointed to a slew of efforts from Republicans across the country that they said are an assault on rights. Black people are under attack in America, but we are not victims and we are not powerless. This is the fight before us. Our fundamental rights are under assault and our very history is being denied. But we will not stand by quietly as it happens. We will never give up when so many people are counting on us to fight for them. The caucus pointed to the GOP-led state legislature in Alabama defying a Supreme Court order to create a second majority black congressional district. They highlighted the Supreme Court's decision to overturn affirmative action. And most recently, they pointed to new education guidelines in Florida that require students be told that enslaved people benefited from slavery. These laws, they say, have an undeniable, disproportionate impact on Black Americans. Today, some, like Reverend Al Sharpton, are worried, but also angry. For Sharpton, much of what we're seeing today isn't all that different from what happened 60 years ago. There is a lot of uh, concern and some anger. Uh, when you wake up one morning and you're a woman and you no longer have the right to decide your body, that can cause anger. When you wake up one morning and have been told that some of your student debt is forgiven and the Supreme Court says the president can't do that, that can lead to, ang lead to anger. When you wake up one morning and all of a sudden, the fact that your family, because you were a certain color, couldn't advance in education, so there was going to be affirmative action to try and equalize that gap in, in terms of being locked out of higher education. And all of a sudden they say, no, you can't do that. And they say that it is against the uh, 14th Amendment to deal with the question of race. It was written, we were three-fifths of yeah. a man. I think a lot of times people act like this was just Southern culture. It was the law. Rosa Parks uh, was arrested because it was just the law that's in the front of the bus. And I think people don't understand that. That's why when we talk about uh, the question of affirmative action, and I speak at a lot of campuses, and students will invariably from other communities say, well, I, I my parents, uh, grandparents might have done, but I didn't do that. Why should government do that? Because government did it. Government had the laws and enforced the laws. Government must undo and make up what government did. 
Sharpton argued that when students are prevented from learning the full American history, which is hard, which is painful, they lack the ability to grow and the country will ultimately suffer. I think so much about uh, when I see the try to remove uh, black history, LGBT uh, discussions, women history. Uh, it's almost like if we shut this down, people will not understand why we need to continue to make progress. So if you have a Governor DeSantis in Florida trying to uh, make certain laws against uh, certain books or banning certain books in other parts of the country, then the only conclusion you could have is that blacks were just inherently inferior. So we don't only need black history for black young kids. White kids need to understand what happened, and therefore we need to do these things now. It is depriving whites of understanding how we ended up in a society that we have different needs based on different circumstances. It's not to condemn people. It is to understand people so that we can uh, move and equalize and, and work together. I, I never thought uh, I would see a time where people would celebrate trying to erase and, and edit history. Uh, and, and I've been able to live through some of it. I joined the civil rights movement in the North. I was not born in the South when I was 12 years old. And I lived to speak at Rosa Parks' funeral and uh, Aretha Franklin's and James Brown and Michael Jackson. So I'm looking at black history that I was able to live through. I was in South Africa when Mandela won for president. And I sat on the, on the podium when Barack Obama was inaugurated first black president. So I feel an obligation to protect the history that even in my small part was a part of. And you're going to tell me we're not going to be able to tell those stories because that might make people uncomfortable? No, we need to tell people that despite the fact we were chattel slaves, we were able to struggle and get to a black president. That can be a glorious story, but you take the glory out of the story when you want to take the pain and the suffering out. And the whites that stood up as abolitionists with Frederick Douglass and that a uh, hundred years later marched with Martin Luther King. Tell the whole story. Anytime you have an edited story, you underestimate the intellect and ability of American people to understand our growth. The NAACP has been particularly outspoken over the attempts to restrict what is taught in classrooms. For Derek Johnson, president and CEO of the NAACP, the legislation that is coming out is in part why the March on Washington was so important. Like Cortland Cox said, the march was about solidifying Black political power in a number of ways, but particularly by shifting the makeup of who has the power to make decisions in the country. We are in the fight. We are in the fight to ensure that individuals are not put in office who run counter to what the future of this country should be because they're trying to move us back to 1950s reality. You, know, you think about the March on Washington, Two, three things important came out of that. You had a group of individuals who went to the march and they left and they doubled down their dedications and they went to a state like Mississippi. Corley was one of those people and they created a real strategy because they realized although the march was important, significant, and it felt good for some, the people are going to go back and live in the same hell they left from, right? And out of that, you get Freedom Summer. Out of that, you get the challenge to the Democratic Party and the notion of who will have access to the vote. But also out of that, 
was the free speech movement and, and the women's suffrage movement. All of these things came out of it because it was a true demonstration that, that we individually have agency to give rise to what was necessary. And because of Freedom Summer, you get the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Because of, of, of Freedom Summer, you have the concept of community health centers all across the country now. Because of Freedom Summer, we recognize that the movement must be community-centric, not egocentric. It's never about the one person or the one speech. It's about the collective whole, putting in the work to ensure that equal protection under the law is afforded to everyone. Johnson says the March on Washington was an important moment in our nation's history, but it wasn't the end in the fight for civil rights. The fight for civil rights has been going on long before we even had a name for it, and it will continue until equality is achieved. The moments of success throughout the fight, Johnson says, were pivotal and offered us breaks in between certain periods of time. The march was one of those breaks. To be clear, the march on Washington 60 years ago was the stopping point between the work, but the work has been going on for centuries. The very reason why Africans were brought here was to exploit them for cheap and or free labor, dominating most of productions. When you look at the movement for, for human dignity, you're talking about a three-legged stool. Stool one, in a democracy, your vote is your currency. Our access to the ballot box, being able to operate as full citizens, uh, African-Americans in this country. Country. We fought in every war. We, we prevented the breakup of the Union by defeating the Confederacy. No one saved us. We fought for liberation. As a result, we got 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. So that first leg of that stool is about access to the ballot box recording, we're just talking about, and the vote, and the power of the vote. That second stool was about the aspiration of the future, making sure there was access to a public education system. So if you look at the Southern landscape particularly, the, the creation of public schools was the result of African-Americans getting elected to office uh, in the 1800, and one of the first policy considerations was the creation of public education across the Southern landscape. And then the third leg is the ability to negotiate for one's labor and skill, whether individually or collectively. That's a three-legged stool of the movement in this country for black people, and it's been going on for centuries, not just 60 years. The march on Washington was a culmination of many individuals and leaders coming together. It was intergenerational. So you had the senior leaders like A. Philip Randolph. You had individuals in between age like by Russia's. You had Corlin and his counterparts of student nonviolent coordinating committee members who all came together to highlight that this country had not met, fulfilled its commitment as guaranteed in the Constitution. So 60 years was a stopping point, but the fight will continue to go on as it had gone on prior to the March on Washington. That fight was replicated this weekend when the NAACP Sharpton's National Action Network, and the King's Drum Major Institute gathered hundreds in the shadows of Lincoln once more. No justice! No justice! What do we want? What do we want? When do we want it? When do we want it? Of course, unlike 60 years ago, this march didn't take only 90 days to come together. But it did come at a time of what some consider a backlash to racial progress. We witnessed in 2020 the beginning of a racial reckoning in this in this country. And I think that not many of us are surprised to see what we're seeing, which is, um, let's be truthful, a, a white backlash. You know, Martin's father talked a lot about, you know, like there, it's inevitable. You almost can 
set your clocks to whenever there's perceived progress, the inevitable backlash. And this country must deal with white supremacy. We have never fully dealt with it. We've gotten close on some levels. We've danced around it. And there is a way to do so in which it is healing um, because it's not about collective guilt, but it is about collective responsibility. And I think in a certain sense, this wouldn't be a, a total surprise to Martin Luther King Jr. nor Coretta Scott King, because we have to remember that he told us that the next phase of the civil rights movement would be for genuine equality. But he also said that that would be a much more difficult phase because when you're talking about integrating, you know, lunch counter, when you're talking about integrating buses as dangerous as that was, and we, we must never forget that people lost their lives in those those battles. And he, as, as dangerous as those were, he knew that the next phase would be even more dangerous and even more difficult in and and um, in challenging it. And that's where we are really as a nation and world. How do we all stand and work for genuine equality? For King, the fight toward justice isn't a marathon sprint. It happens in waves. Sometimes there's a lull, sometimes there's a surge. But what brings the backlash Andrea mentioned is a sense of fear. When people are afraid, they're easily controlled. They're easily manipulated. Uh, and it has been programmed, this fear. Fear against different points of view. Fear against me, what might become. And people, when you cling to your fears and not your faith. Now, faith is different, by the way, than religion. I'm not talking about religion. There's, there's faith that people have had. And faith allows you to incorporate all of the different religions, as well as even some who may not be religious, because you have to have faith that a better day is going to come. Now you have to help create a better day. It doesn't just arbitrarily happen by the tone that you set. Uh, and again, that's why I said that, you know, we've allowed a tone, a culture of violence and not chosen a culture of nonviolence, which humankind must do if humankind wants to survive. We've seen this movie before. All the civilizations that embraced fear, ultimately, you know, which people said were great civilizations, they don't exist anymore. We as a civilization must become better if we're going to become bigger, uh, or we could find, have that same fate. Now, that's not something we want to think about. Therefore, we must create the climate for moving to a higher level. We as people are much better than the behavior that we are exhibiting at this particular moment. This behavior, and in my dad's book, the last book he wrote, where do we go from here? He wrote that in 1950, um, excuse me, in 1966. Uh, I may have been released in 67. So 56, 57 years ago, where do we go from here? chaos or community. It's ironic that that book was written back then and we are seeing all kind of chaos, but we must work to build community. And that is the philosophy uh, and, 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 and engagement that we are involved in working to build, build community across this nation and our world. Saturday's demonstration was a remediation to the movement of fighting the three evils, King said. And it was one that featured not only a multiracial coalition, 
but a multi-generational one as well. Youth have always been the energy of any movement. And I think that uh, when you look at the 60s, Student Nonviolent Committee, they were the ones that did the sit-ins. Martin Luther King never got on a bus and did a sit-in. That was SNCC, John Lewis and, and, and others that were 12, 15 uh, years younger than him, some even more. Uh, youth were the ones that few when I came along. I was I joined Operation Breadbasket, the economic arm in the north of Dr. King's organization. When I was 12, I became youth director of the New York chapter when I was 13. So I had a youth group all through my teenage years. So I have an appreciation for youth. And what, what I think the media gets wrong is youth are not one-dimensional. You have some youth that are in traditional organizations, like in uh, Dr. King's time, uh, uh, Julian Bond and John Lewis and all were in the nonviolent movement. You had some youth in the Black Power movement. You had some youth that believed in the revolution and wanted nothing to do with America. You had some that were Pan-Africanists. The same is true today. It's an important time for youth at this moment, says Johnson. They're not only the new wave of voters coming in, but they're the ones who are being impacted by many of these laws even if it doesn't always seem like it. There is no community more American than black Americans. Despite all of the reneging of the promise, we still hold true to making democracy work is one of our primary responsibilities and to ensure equal protection under the law. The beautiful thing about Corlin and, and the SNCC veterans, they focus narrowly on how do we empower more young people? You know, it's fascinating. Uh, he talked about the experience once he turned 30, he realized he was old. And that's how he treated the movement. Once a young person who's active once they turn 30, he's looking for the next group of individuals because we have to keep the pipeline of young activists to understand that they have a voice and a vote and that they're owners of government and they should never be victims of government. But the Kings remind everyone that while the fight for civil rights has been ongoing for generations, that's because it's not something that can be achieved overnight. But dad's message and and one of the things I've said is, you know, we hear with our ears, but we listen with our heart. And what I mean by that is I have heard I have a dream thousands of times, but I've only listened hundreds. When I listen, I move to tears. I, I don't care how many times I've heard it. When I'm listening is the only time that I'm impacted and I can't contain my emotions. If we can get our nation to hear and listen, we can perhaps make the changes to create a climate for freedom and justice and equality for all humankind. In other words, I don't know that that message can be uh, improved much. We just have to execute that message. And it resounds even maybe louder today than maybe it did, you know, 60 years ago because of the particular climate and the conflicts in the world that we've got to navigate through. So in a real sense, you know, I'm more encouraged because the coalition is growing and there are more people who are willing to say, look, we got to stand up, protect and preserve and expand not just our democracy, our democracy, but in in terms of, you know, humankind in general, uh, almost have to understand that this scenario is not a sprint. 
I wish it was. It, it really is a marathon. And every time you think uh, one of the, that we're there, my mother used to say, freedom has never been permanently given. Every generation must must earn and, and actually move the pendulum forward. So, you know, I always was hoping that maybe she was wrong, in a sense, you know, because you would like to say, okay, we've done that, we're done. No, we're not. We have to get up almost every day um, and, and, and navigate through the world and really create the climate. I mean, dad used to say, we must learn nonviolence or we may face non-existence. None of us want, want to get to that point, but we're at a critical point now where maybe people will say, you know what, there's a better way for us as human beings to coexist at a much higher level. It's all right to take a break. You can't stay on the battlefield every day. Uh, you have to find a way to renew, to, to turn inward, to fortify self, and then come back uh, to the battle. I mean, some days we have to, you just have to rest. I mean, that's, that's human nature, but it does not mean we will give up, we will give in, we will give out. I'm your host, Cheyenne Daniels, race and politics reporter for The Hill, and from all of us at The Hill, thanks for listening to this episode of The Switch Up. We'll have more episodes delving into the intersection of race and politics soon, so be sure to follow The Hill at T-H-E-H-I-L-L on all social media for future updates, including episode drops and articles. The Switch Up was created and written by me, Cheyenne Daniels, Script editing for this episode was done by Steph Thomas. Audio production by Christian Carter. Special thanks to Casey Brady.